Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Showboat, the classic story from Edna Ferber that inspired one of the greatest American musicals. This is the eighth book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads, featuring the acclaimed Canadian actress, artist, television, and radio host, Marilyn Lightstone. You can find the entire series online at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads Edna Ferber's Showboat. Showboat by Edna Ferber Chapter 1 Bizarre as was the name she bore, Kim Ravenel always said she was thankful it had been no worse. She knew whereof she spoke, for it was literally by a breath that she had escaped being called Mississippi. <laughs> Imagine Mississippi, Ravenel, she often said in later years. They'd have cut it to Missy, I suppose, or even Sippy, if you can bear to think of anything so horrible. And then I'd have had to change my name or give up the stage altogether, because who'd go to see, I mean, seriously, an actress named Sippy? It sounds half-witted for some reason. Oh, Kim's bad enough, God knows. And as Kim Ravenel, you doubtless are familiar with her. It is no secret that the absurd monosyllable which comprises her given name is made up of the first letters of three states, Kentucky, Illinois, and Missouri, in all of which she was, incredibly enough, born, if she can be said to have been born in any state at all. Her mother insists that she wasn't, if you were an habitué of Old South Clark Street in Chicago's naughty nineties, you may even remember her mother, Magnolia Ravenel, as Nola Ravenel Soubrette, though Nola Ravenel never achieved the doubtful distinction of cigarette pictures. In a day when the stage measured feminine pulchritude in terms of hips, thighs, and calves, she was considered much too thin for beauty, let alone for tights. It had been this Magnolia Ravenel's respiratory lag that had saved the newborn girl from being cursed through life with a name boasting more quadruple vowels and consonants than any other in the language. She had meant to call the child Mississippi after the tawny, untamed river on which she had spent so much of her girlhood, and which had stirred and fascinated her always. Her accouchement had been an ordeal even more terrifying than is ordinarily the case, for Kip Ravenel had actually been born on the raging, turgid bosom of the Mississippi River itself, when that rampageous stream was flooding its banks and inundating towns for miles around at five o'clock of a storm-wracked April morning in 1889. It was at a point just below Cairo, Illinois, that region known as Little Egypt, where the yellow waters of the Mississippi and the olive-green waters of the Ohio so disdainfully meet and refuse, with bull-neck pride, to mingle. From her cabin window on the second deck of the Cotton Blossom Floating Palace Theatre, Magnolia Ravenel could have seen the misty shores of three states— if any earthly shores had interested her at the moment. Just here was Illinois, to whose crumbling clay banks the showboat was so perilously pinioned. Beyond, almost hidden by the rain veil, was Missouri, and there, Kentucky. But Magnolia Ravenel lay with her eyes shut, because the effort of lifting her lids was beyond her. 
Seeing her, you would have said that if any shores filled her vision at the moment, they were heavenly ones, and those dangerously near. So white, so limp, so spent was she, that her face on the pillow was startlingly like one of the waxen blossoms whose name she bore. Her slimness made almost no outline beneath the bedclothes. The coverlet was drawn up to her chin. There was only the white flower on the pillow, its petals closed. Outside, the redundant rain added its unwelcome measure to the swollen and angry stream. In the ghostly gray dawn, the grotesque wreckage of flood time floated and whirled and jiggled by, seeming to bob a mad obeisance as it passed the showboat, which, in its turn, made stately bows from its moorings. There drifted past, in fantastic parade, great trees, uprooted and clutching at the water with stiff dead arms, logs catapulted with terrific force, animal carcasses, dreadful in their passivity, chicken coops, rafts, a piano, its ivory mouth fixed in a death's grin, a two-room cabin, upright and moving in a minuet of stately and ponderous swoops and advances and chassés, fence rails, an armchair whose white crocheted antimacassar stared in prim disapproval at the wild antics of its fellow voragers, a live sheep bleating as it came, but soon still, a bed with its covers, by some freak of suction still snugly tucked in as when its erstwhile occupant had fled from it in fright. All these, and more, contributed to the weird terror of the morning. The Mississippi itself was a tawny tiger, roused, furious, bloodthirsty, lashing out with its great tail, tearing with its cruel claws, and burying its fangs deep in the shore to swallow at a gulp land, houses, trees, cattle, humans even, and roaring, snarling, howling hideously as it did so. Inside Magnolia Ravenel's cabin, all was snug and warm and bright. A wood fire snapped and crackled cozily in the little pot-bellied iron stove. Over it bent a veritable sairy gamp, stirring something hot and savory in a saucepan. She stirred noisily and talked as she stirred, and glanced from time to time at the mute white figure in the bed. Her own bulky figure was made more ponderous by layer on layer of ill-assorted garments, of the kind donned from time to time as night wears on, by one who, having been aroused hastily and in emergency, had arrived scantily clad. A grey flannel nightgown probably formed the basis of this costume, for its grizzled cuffs could just be seen emerging from the man's coat, whose sleeves she wore turned back from the wrists for comfort and convenience. This coat was a box cut, double-breasted, blue with brass buttons and gold braid, of the sort that river captains wear— it gave her a racy and nautical look absurdly at variance with her bulk and occupation. Peeping beneath and above and around this, the baffled eye could just glimpse oddments and elegancies, such as a red flannel dressing gown, a flower-bestricked chalet sack whose frill of doubtful lace made the captain's coat even more incongruous, a brown cashmere skirt, 
very bustled and bunchy, a pair of scuffed tan kid bedroom slippers, men's, of the sort known as Romeo's. This lady's back hair was twisted into a knob strictly utilitarian. Her front hair bristled with the wired ends of kid curlers, assumed doubtless the evening before the hasty summons. Her face and head were long and horse-like, at variance with her bulk. This, you sensed immediately, was a person possessed of enormous energy, determination, and the gift of making exquisitely uncomfortable anyone who happened to be within hearing radius. She was the sort who rattles anything that can be rattled, slams anything that can be slammed, bumps anything that can be bumped. Her name, by some miracle of fitness, was Parthenia Ann Hawks, wife of Andy Hawks, captain and owner of the Cotton Blossom Floating Palace Theatre, and mother of this Magnolia Ravenel, who, having just been delivered of a daughter, lay supine in her bed. Now, as Mrs. Hawks stirred the mess over which she was bending, her spoon regularly scraped the bottom of the pan with a rasping sound that would have tortured any nerves but her own iron-encased set. She removed the spoon, freeing it of clinging drops by rapping it smartly and metallically against the rim of the basin. Magnolia Ravenel's eyelids fluttered ever so slightly. Now then, spake Parthy Ann Hawks briskly in that commanding tone against which even the most spiritless instinctively rebelled. Now then, young lady, want it or not, you'll eat some of this broth, good and hot and strengthening. "'and maybe you won't look so much like a wet dish rag.' "'Pan in one hand, spoon in the other, "'she advanced toward the bed with a tread that jarred the furniture "'and set the dainty, dimity window curtains to fluttering. "'She brought up against the side of the bed with a bump. "'A shadow of pain flitted across the white face on the pillow. "'The eyes still were closed.' As the smell of the hot liquid reached her nostrils, the lips of the girl on the bed curled in distaste. Here, I'll just spoon it right up to you out of the pan, so it'll be good and hot. Open your mouth. Open your eyes. I say, open. Well, for land's sake, how do you expect a body to do anything for you if you... With a motion shocking in its swift unexpectedness, Magnolia Ravenel's hand emerged from beneath the coverlet, dashed aside the spoon with its steaming contents, and sent it clattering to the floor. Then her hand stole beneath the coverlet again, and with a little relaxed sigh of satisfaction, she lay passive as before. She had not opened her eyes. She was smiling ever so slightly. That's right. Act like a wildcat, just because I tried to get you to sup up a little soup that Joe's been hours cooking, and two pounds of good mutton in it if there's an ounce, besides vegetables and barley, and your pa practically risked his life getting the meat down at Cairo and the water going up by the foot every hour. No, you're not satisfied to get us caught here in the flood, and how we'll ever get out alive or dead, God knows, and me and everybody on the boat up all night long with your goings-on, so you'd think nobody'd ever have a baby before. Time I had you, there wasn't a whimper out of me. Not a whimper. I'd have died first. Never saw anything as indelicate as the way you carried on and your own husband in the room. 
Here Magnolia conveyed with a flutter of the lids that this had not been an immaculate conception. Well, if you could see yourself now, a drowned rat isn't the word. Now you take this broth, my fine lady, or we'll see who's... She paused in this dramatic threat to blow a cooling breath on a generous spoonful of the steaming liquid, to sup it up with audible appreciation, and to take another. She smacked her lips. Now then, no more of your monkey shines, Maggie Hawks. No one but her mother had ever called Magnolia Ravenel Maggie Hawks. It was unthinkable that a name so harsh and unlovely could be applied to this fragile person. Having picked up the rejected spoon and wiped it on the lace revel of the chalet sack, that terrible termagant grasped it firmly against surprise in her right hand, and, saucepan and left, now advanced a second time toward the bed. You saw the flower on the pillow, frosted by an icy mask of utter unyieldingness. You caught a word that sounded like shenanigans from the woman bending over the bed, when the cabin door opened and two twittering females entered, attired in garments strangely akin to the haphazard costume worn by Mrs. Hawks. The foremost of these moved in a manner so bustling as to be unmistakably official. She was at once ponderous, playful, and menacing. This last attribute, due, perhaps, to the rather splendid dark moustache which stamped her upper lip. In her arms she carried a swaddled bundle under one flannel flap, of which the second female kept peering and uttering strange clucking sounds and, and words that resembled, "'Isser and yes, sir is, and finds a gal I ever see!' exclaimed the bustling one. She approached the bed with the bundle. "'Miss Mean says the same.' And so, she glanced contemptuously over her shoulder at a pale and haggard young man, bearded but boyish, who followed close behind them, does the doctor. She paused before the word doctor, so that the title, when finally it was uttered, carried with it a poisonous derision. This mysterious sally earned a little snigger from Miss Means and a baleful snort from Mrs. Hawkes. Flushed with success, the lady with the swaddled bundle, unmistakably a midwife, and like all her craft, royally accustomed to homage and applause, waxed more malicious. Fact is, he says only a minute ago, he never brought a finer baby that he can remember. At this, the snickers and snorts became unmistakable guffaws. The wan young man became a flushed young man. He fumbled awkwardly with the professionally massive watch-chain that so unnecessarily guarded his cheap nickel blob of a watch. He glanced at the flower-like face on the pillow. Its aloofness, its remoteness from the three frowsy females that hovered about it, seemed to lend him a momentary dignity and courage. He thrust his hands behind the tails of his Prince Albert coat and strode toward the bed. A wave of the hand, a slight shove with the shoulder, dismissed the three as nuisances. One moment, my good woman. If you please, Mrs. Hawkes, kindly don't jiggle. The midwife stepped aside with the bundle. Mrs. Hawkes fell back a step, the ineffectual spoon and saucepan in her hands. Miss Means ceased to cluck and to lean on the bed's footboard. From a capacious inner coat pocket, 
He produced a stethoscope, applied it, listened, straightened. From the waistcoat pocket came the timepiece, telltale of his youth and impecuniosity. He extracted his patient's limp wrist from beneath the coverlet and held it in his own strong, spatulate fingers. The fingers of the son of a farmer. Hmm, fine, he exclaimed. Splendid! An unmistakable sniff from the midwife. The boy's florid manner dropped from him. He cringed a little. The sensitive hand he still held in his great grasp seemed to feel this change in him, though Magnolia Ravenel had not opened her eyes even at the entrance of the three. Her wrist slid itself out of his hold and down until her fingers met his and pressed them, lightly, reassuringly. The youth looked down, startled. Magnolia Ravenel, white-lipped, was smiling her wide, gay, gorgeous smile that melted the very vitals of you. It was a smile at once poignant and brilliant. It showed her gums a little and softened the planes of her high cheekbones and subdued the angles of the too prominent jaw. A comradely smile, an understanding and warming one. Strange that this woman on the bed so lately torn and racked with the agonies of childbirth, should be the one to encourage the man whose clumsy ministrations had so nearly cost her her life. That she could smile at all was sheer triumph of the spirit over the flesh, and that she could smile in sympathy for and encouragement of this bungling, inexpert young medico was incredible. But that was Magnolia Ravenel. Properly directed and managed, her smile in later years could have won her a fortune. But direction and management were as futile when applied to her as to the great untamed Mississippi that even now was floating man-built barriers, laughing at levees that said so far and no further, jeering at jetties that said do thus and so, for that matter, roaring this very moment in derision of Magnolia Ravenel herself, and her puny pangs, and her mortal plans, and her father, Captain Andy Hawks, and her mother, Parthenia Anne Hawks, and her husband, Gaylord Ravenel, and the whole troop of the showboat, and the cotton-blossom floating palace theatre itself, now bobbing about like a cork on the yellow flood that tugged and sucked and tore at its moorings. Two tantrums of nature had been responsible for the present precarious position of the showboat and its occupants. The Mississippi had furnished one, Magnolia Ravenel the other. Or perhaps it might be fairer to fix the blame not on nature, but on human stupidity that had failed to take into account its vagaries. Certainly. Captain Andy Hawks should have known better after thirty-five years of experience on keelboats, steamboats, packets, and showboats up and down the great Mississippi and her tributaries. Well, the Indians might call this stream the father of waters, but your riverman respectfully used the feminine pronoun. The brand-new showboat had done it. Built in the St. Louis shipyards, the new cotton blossom was to have been ready for him by February. But February had come and gone, and March as well. 
He had meant to be in New Orleans by this time, with his fine new showboat and his troupe and his band of musicians in their fresh, glittering red and gold uniforms, and the marvelous steam calliope that could be heard for miles up and down the bayous and plantations. Starting at St. Louis, he had planned a swift trip downstream, playing just enough towns on the way to make expenses. Then, beginning with Bayou Teche and pushed by the sturdy steamer Molly Abel, they would proceed grandly upstream, calliope screaming, flags flying, band tooting to play every little town and landing and plantation from New Orleans to Baton Rouge, from Baton Rouge to Vicksburg, to Memphis, to Cairo, to St. Louis, up and up to Minnesota itself. Then, over to the coal towns on the Monongahela River and the Kanawha, and down again to New Orleans, following the crops as they ripened, the corn belt, the cotton belt, the sugar cane, north when the wheat yellowed, following with the sun the ripening of the peas, the tomatoes, the crabs, the peaches, the apples, and as the farmer gathered his golden crops, so would shrewd Captain Andy Hawks gather his harvest of gold. It was April before the new cotton blossom was finished and ready to take to the rivers. Late though it was, when Captain Andy Hawks beheld her, glittering from Texas to Keel in white paint with green trimmings, and with cotton blossom floating palace theater done in letters two feet high on her upper deck, he was vain enough, or foolhardy enough, or both, to resolve to stand by his original plan. A little nervous fussy man, Andy Hawks, with the horrible habit of clawing and scratching from side to side when aroused or when deep in thought at the little mutton-chop whiskers that sprang out like twin brushes just below his leather-visored white canvas cap, always a trifle too large for his head, so that it settled down over his ears— a capering figure in light linen pants, very wrinkled and baggy, and a blue coat, double-breasted, with a darting manner, bright brown eyes, and a trick of talking very fast as he clawed the mutton-chop whiskers, first this side, then that, with one brown, hairy little hand. There was about him something grotesque, something simian. He beheld the new cotton blossom, as a bridegroom gazes upon a bride. And frenziedly clawing his whiskers, he made his unwise decision. She won't high water this year till June. He was speaking of that tawny tigress, the Mississippi, and certainly no one knew her moods better than he. Not much snow last winter north, and no rain to speak of. Yes, sir, we'll just blow down to New Orleans ahead of French's sensation his bitterest rival in the showboat business, and start to work the bayous, show him a clean pair of heels up and down the river. So they had started, and because the tigress lay smooth and unruffled now, with only the currents playing gently below the surface like muscles beneath the golden yellow skin, they fancied she would remain complacent until they had had their way. That was the first mistake. The second was as unreasoning. Magnolia Ravenel's child was going to be a boy. Ma Hawks and the wise married women of the troop knew the signs. She felt thus and so. She had such and such sensations. 
She was carrying the child high. Boys always were slower in being born than girls. Besides, this was a first child, and the first child always is late. They got together in mysterious female conclave and counted on the fingers of their two hands. August, September, October, November, December. Why, the end of April, the soonest. They'd be safe in New Orleans by then, with the best of doctors for Magnolia, and she on land while one of the other women in the company played her parts until she was strong again. A matter of two or three weeks at most. No sooner had they started than the rains began. No early April showers, these, but torrents that blotted out the riverbanks on either side and sent the clay tumbling in great cave-ins down to the water, jaundicing it afresh where already it seethed an ochreous mass. Day after day, night after night, the rains came down, melting the northern ice and snow filtering through the land of the Mississippi Basin and finding its way, whether trickle, rivulet, creek, stream, or river, to the great hungry mother, Mississippi. And she grew swollen and tossed and flung her huge limbs about and shrieked in labor even as Magnolia Ravenel was so soon to do. Eager for entertainment as the dwellers were along the little Illinois and Missouri towns, after a long winter of dull routine on farm and in store and schoolhouse, they came sparsely to the showboat. Posters had told them of her coming, and the news filtered to the back country. Town and village thrilled to the sound of the steam calliope as the cotton-blossom floating palace theatre propelled by the square-cut clucking old steamer Molly Abel swept grandly down the river to the landing. But the backcountry roads were impassable bogs by now, and growing worse with every hour of rain. Wagon wheels sank to the hubs in mud. There were crude signs stuck on poles reading, No Bottom Here. The dodgers posted on walls and fences in the towns were rain-soaked and bleary, and as for the cotton-blossom floating Palace Theatre ten-piece band, which numbered six, how could it risk ruin of its smart new red coats, gold-braided and gold-buttoned, by marching up the water-logged streets of these little towns whose occupants only stared wistfully out through storm-blurred windows? It was dreary even at night, when the showboat glowed invitingly with the blaze of a hundred oil lamps that lighted the auditorium seating six hundred. One thousand seats, a luxurious floating theatre within an unrivaled floating palace. Usually the flaming oil flares on their tall poles, stuck in the deep clay banks that led down to the showboat at the water's edge, made a path of fiery splendor. Now, they hissed and spluttered dismally, almost extinguished by the deluge. Even when the bill was St. Elmo or East Lynn, those tried and trusty winners, the announcement of which always packed the showboat's auditorium to the very last seat in the balcony, there was now only a damp handful of shuffle-footed men and giggling girls and a few children in the cheaper rear seats. The Mississippi Valley dwellers, 
wise with the terrible wisdom born of much suffering under the dominance of this voracious and untamed monster, so ruthless when roused, were preparing against catastrophe should these days of rain continue. Captain Andy Hawks clawed his mutton-sharp whiskers, this side and that, and scanned the skies, and searched the yellowing, swollen stream with his bright brown eyes. "'We'll make for Cairo,' he said. "'Full steam ahead! I don't like the looks of her, the big yellow snake!' But full steam ahead was impossible for long in a snag-infested river, as Andy Hawks well knew, and in a river whose treacherous channel shifted almost daily in normal times and hourly in flood time. Cautiously they made for Cairo, Cape Girardeau, Grays Point, Commerce, then suddenly, near evening, the false sun shone for a brief hour. At once, everyone took heart. The rains, they assured each other, were over. The spring freshet would subside twice as quickly as it had risen. Fittingly enough, the play billed for that evening was Tempest and Sunshine, always a favorite. Magnolia Ravenel cheerfully laced herself into the cruel, steel-stiffened, high-busted corset of the period and donned the golden curls and the prim ruffles of the part. A goodish crowd scrambled and slipped and slid down the rain-soaked clay bank, torch illumined, to the showboat, their boots leaving a trail of mud and water up and down the aisles of the theatre and between the seats. It was a restless audience and hard to hold. There had been an angry sunset and threatening clouds to the northwest. The crowd shuffled its feet, coughed, stirred constantly. There was in the air something electric, menacing, heavy. Suddenly, during the last act, the north wind sprang up with a whistling sound, and the little choppy hard waves could be heard slapping against the boat's flat sides. She began to rock, too, and pitch flat though she was, and securely moored to the riverbank. Lightning, a fusillade of thunder, and then the rain again, heavy like drops of molten lead and driven by the north wind. The crowd scrambled up the perilous clay banks, slipping, falling, cursing, laughing, frightened. To this day, it is told that the river rose seven feet in twenty-four hours. Captain Andy Hawks, still clawing his whiskers, still bent on making for Cairo, cast off, and ordered the gangplank in as the last scurrying villager clawed his way up the slimy incline whose heights the river was scaling inch by inch. "'The Ohio's the place!' he insisted, his voice high and squeaky with excitement. "'High water at Cincinnati, St. Louis, Evansville, or even Paducah don't have to mean high water on the Ohio!' It's the old yellow serpent making all this kick up. But the Ohio's the river gives Cairo the real trouble. Yes, sir, and she don't flood till June. We'll make for the Ohio and stay on her till this comes to a stand, anyway. Then followed the bedlam of putting off. Yells, hoarse shouts, bells ringing, wheels churning the water to foam. Lively now! Cramp her down! Snatch her! Snatch her! 
Faintly above the storm, you heard the cracked falsetto of little Captain Andy Hawks, a pilot for years, squeaking to himself in his nervousness the orders that river etiquette forbade his actually giving that ruler, that ultimate sovereign, the pilot, old Mark Hooper, whose real name was no more Mark than Twain's had been, relic of his leadsman days, with the cry of, Mark Three! Mark Three! Half Twain! Quarter Twain! Mark Twain! gruffly shouted along the hurricane deck. It was told on the rivers that little Andy Hawks had been known, under excitement, to walk off the deck into the river and to bob afloat there until rescued, still sputtering and shrieking orders in a profane falsetto. Down the river they went, floating easily over bars that in normal times stood six feet out of the water clattering through chutes, shaving the shores. Thunder, lightning, rain, chaos outside. Within, the orderly routine of bedtime on the showboat. Miss Means, the female half of the character team, heating over a tiny spirit flame a spoonful of goose grease, which she would later rub on her husband's meager, cough-wrecked chest. Naughty Ranger of the general business team, sipping her bedtime cup of coffee. Bert Forbush, utility man, in shirt sleeves, check pants and carpet slippers, playing a sleep-inducing game of Canfield. All this on the stage, bare now of scenery, and turned into a haphazard and impromptu lounging room for the members of this floating theatrical company. Mrs. Hawkes, in her fine new cabin on the second deck off the gallery, was putting her sparse hair in crimpers, as she would do if this were the night before Judgment Day. Flood, storm, danger, all part of river showboat life. Ordinarily, it is true, they did not proceed downriver until daybreak. After the performance, the showboat and its steamer would stay snug and still alongside the wharf of this little town or that. By midnight, company and crew would have fallen asleep to the sound of the water, slap-slapping gently against the boat's sides. Tonight, there probably would be little sleep for some of the company, what with the storm, the motion, the unwanted stir, and the noise that came from the sturdy Molly Abel, bracing her cautious bulk against the flood's swift urging, and certainly none for Captain Andy Hawks, for pilot Mark Hooper and the crew of the Molly Abel. But that, too, was all part of the life. Midnight had found Gaylord Ravenel in nightshirt and dressing gown, a handsome and distraught figure, pounding on the door of his mother-in-law's cabin. From the cabin he had just left came harrowing sounds, whimpers and little groans and great moans, like an animal in agony. Magnolia Ravenel was not one of your silent sufferers. She was too dramatic for that. Maneuvered magically by the expert Hooper, they managed to make a perilous landing just above Cairo. The region was scoured for a doctor without success, for accident had followed on flood. Captain Andy had tracked down a stout and reluctant midwife, who consented only after an enormous bribe to make the perilous trip to the levee. Clambering ponderously down the slippering bank with many groanings and forebodings, and being sustained, 
both in bulk and spirit, by the agile and vivacious little captain, much as a tiny, fussy river tug guides a gigantic and unwieldy ocean liner. He was almost frantically distraught, for between Andy Hawkes and his daughter, Magnolia Ravenel, was that strong bond of affection and mutual understanding that always exists between the hen-picked husband and the harassed offspring of a shrew such as Parthy and Hawks. When, an hour later, Gaylord Ravenel, rain-soaked and mud-spattered, arrived with a white-faced young doctor's assistant, whose first obstetrical call this was, he found the fat midwife already in charge and inclined to elbow about any young medical upstart who might presume to dictate to a female of her experience. It was a sordid and ravaging confinement which, at its climax, teetered for one dreadful moment between tragedy and broad comedy. For at the crisis, just before dawn, the fat midwife, busy with ministrations, had said to the perspiring young doctor, "'Do you think it's time to snuff her?' Bewildered and not daring to show his ignorance, he had replied, "'Um, not just yet. Uh, no, no, not, not just yet.' Again, the woman had said, ten minutes later, Time to snuff her, I'd say. Well, perhaps it is. He watched her fearfully, wondering what she might mean, cursing his own lack of knowledge. To his horror and amazement, before he could stop her, she had stuffed a great pinch of strong snuff up either nostril of Magnolia Ravenel's delicate nose. And thus... Kim Ravenel was born into the world on the gust of a series of convulsive achoos. God, almighty woman, cried the young medical. You've killed her. Oh, run along, do, retorted the fat midwife testily, for she was tired by now and hungry and wanted her coffee badly. Hmm, it's a gal. Oh, and they had their minds all made up to a boy. Never knew it to fail. She turned to Magnolia's mother, a ponderous and unwieldy figure at the foot of the bed. Well, now, Miss... Miss Hawks, ain't it? Oh, that's right, Hawks. Well, now, Miss Hawks, we'll get this young lady washed up, and then I'd thank you for a pot of coffee and some breakfast, and partial to a meat breakfast. All this had been a full hour ago. Magnolia Ravenel still lay, inert, unheeding. She had not even looked at her child. Her mother now uttered bitter complaint to the others in the room. "'Won't touch a drop of this good nourishing broth. Knock the spoon right out of my hand, would you believe it? For all she lays there looking so gone. Well, I'm going to open her mouth and pour it down.' The young doctor raised a protesting palm. "'No, no, no, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do that.' He bent over the white face on the pillow. Just a spoonful, he coaxed softly. Just a swallow. She did not vouchsafe him another smile. He glanced at the irate woman with the saucepan, at the two attendant vestals. Isn't there somebody? The men of the company and the crew were out, he well knew, with pike poles in hand, working to keep the drifting objects clear of the boats. Gaylord Ravenel would be with them. He had been in and out a score of times through the night, his handsome young face, 
too handsome, the awkward young doctor had privately decided, twisted with horror and pity and self-reproach. He had noticed, too, that the girl's cries had abated not a whit when the husband was there. But when he took her writhing fingers and put one hand on her wet forehead and said, in a voice that broke with agony, Oh, Nola, Nola, don't, don't, I didn't know it was like this. Not like this, Magnola, she had said through clenched teeth and white lips, surprisingly enough, with the knowledge handed down to her through centuries of women writhing in childbirth. It's all right, Gay. Always like this. Oh, damn it. Don't you worry. It's all... And the harassed young doctor had then seen for the first time the wonder of Magnolia Ravenel's poignant smile. So now when he said shyly, "'Isn't there somebody else?' He was thinking that if the young and handsome husband could be spared for but a moment from his pike-pole, it would be better to chance a drifting log sent crashing against the side of the boat by the flood than that this white still figure on the bed should be allowed to grow one whit whiter, or more still. "'Somebody else's fiddlesticks!' exploded Mrs. Hawkes inelegantly. They were all terribly rude to him, poor lad, except the one who might have felt justified in being so. If her own mother can't! She had reheated the broth on the little iron stove and now made a third advance, armed with spoon and saucepan. The midwife had put the swaddling bundle on the pillow so that it lay just beside Magnolia Ravenel's arms. It was she who now interrupted Mrs. Hawkes and abetted her. "'How in time do you expect to nurse?' she demanded. "'If you don't eat!' Magnolia Ravenel didn't know, and seemingly didn't care. A crisis was imminent. It was the moment for drama, and it was furnished obligingly enough by the opening of the door to admit the two whom Magnolia Ravenel loved in all the world. There came first the handsome, haggard Gaylord Ravenel, actually managing in some incredible way to appear elegant, well-dressed, dapper at a time, under circumstances, and in a costume which would have rendered most men unsightly, if not repulsive. But his gifts were many, and not the least of them was the trick of appearing sartorially and tonsorially flawless when dishevelment and a stubble were inevitable in any other male. Close behind him trotted Andy Hawkes, just as he had been twenty-four hours before, wrinkled linen pants, double-breasted blue coat, oversized visored cap, mutton-chop whiskers and all. Together, he and Ma Hawks, in her blue brass-button coat that was a twin of his, managed to give the gathering quite a military aspect. Certainly Mrs. Hawks' manner was martial enough at the moment. She raised her voice now in complaint. "'Won't touch her broth! Ain't half as sick as she lets on, or she wouldn't be so stubborn! Wouldn't have the strength to be, is what I say!' Gaylord Ravenel took from her the saucepan and the spoon— the saucepan he returned to the stove. He espied a cup on the washstand. With a glance at Captain Andy, he pointed silently to this. 
Andy Hawks emptied its contents into the slop jar, rinsed it carefully, and half-filled it with the steaming hot broth. The two men approached the bedside. There was about both a clumsy and touching but magically effective tenderness. Gay Ravenel slipped his left arm under the girl's head, with its hair all spread, so dank and wild on the pillow. Captain Andy Hawks leaned forward, cup in hand, holding it close to her mouth. With his right hand, delicately, Gay Ravenel brought the first hot, revivifying spoonful to her mouth and let it trickle slowly, drop by drop, through her lips. He spoke to her as he did this, but softly, softly, so that the others could not hear the words, only the cadence of his voice, and that was a caress. Another spoonful, and another, and another. He lowered her again to the pillow, his arm still under her head. A faint tinge of palest pink showed under the waxen skin. She opened her eyes, looked up at him. She adored him. Her pain-dulled eyes even then said so. Her lips moved. He bent closer. She was smiling almost mischievously. Fool them. What, she say? rasped Mrs. Hawks fearfully, for she loved the girl. Over his shoulder he repeated the two words she had whispered. Oh, said Parthy Ann Hawks, and laughed. She means fooled him because it's a girl instead of a boy. <laughs> but at that, Magnolia Ravenel shook her head ever so slightly and looked up at him again and held up one slim forefinger and turned her eyes towards the corners with a listening look. And in obedience, he held up his hand then, a warning for silence, though he was as mystified as they. And in the stillness of the room, you heard the roar and howl and crash of the great river whose flood had caught them and shaken them and brought Magnolia Ravenel to bed ahead of her time. And now he knew what she meant. She wasn't thinking of the child that lay against her arms. Her lips moved again. He bent closer, and what she said was, The river. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Showboat. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the eighth book in our Marilyn Lightstone Reads podcast series. Other readings include Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.